All right, we're on. Oh, we are? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> had to turn back. I had to mute my phone again. Is it safe that my phone is in this room with you? <laughs> because basically, you make things break right now. Oh, my God. You got yeah. some bad juju on you, and I don't want that on me. So is this phone safe in here? <laughs> don't you, you have I, to wonder about that? Oh, my gosh. What a week. What a week. Even my son broke this week. <laughs> <laughs> our our um, AC unit went out. Now, what happened with that? Well, How did that get resolved? You know, it was. Did it turn di- out to be the big problem or diagnosed the small problem? as a as a compressor? I don't know. It's going to be. You know, how compressors work. Not really. It's pretty darn cool. I mean, they're different kinds. Pretty darn cool. They have like this little these little channels, and they mechanically force this fluid together. And mm. Really quite cool. Anyway. Huh. Um, it looked like our compressor was busted. Okay, the thing wouldn't wouldn't turn over, as they say in the mm. biz. And that's um, the lingo. That is, and apparently that's a multi thousand dollar thing. <laughs> <laughs> or, but it's also one of those things. You know, you know how these things work, where you, where you get a guy over and and um, and he, you know, he or she'll say like, you know, you, you can replace just this one thing. It'll be like fifteen hundred bucks. I mean, I think that's how much it was seventeen hundred bucks. Right. But but you know, if I were you, you know, this unit is however many years old. I would just replace the whole thing. And including the thing upstairs and all, that could have been six thousand oh. dollars. Now, uh, let's let's do a little let's do a little role play here. Okay, okay. You, Which part uh, am I going to be? Yeah, well, Joe, you ask me. You you be Joe. Okay, okay. And ask me, um, ask me whether I have six thousand dollars just lying around. Just go ahead. Oh, yeah. uh, Christian, do you have six thousand dollars lying around, not doing much of anything else? Um, no, no, I don't. So okay. there you go. That was the problem. All right, that was a problem. That's uh, kind of e- that was kind of a short little play that we did, even, right? There. Yeah, but we I think we should do that more. Okay, and e- even the even the seventeen hundred dollar fix. Let me. That was not going to be easy. No, no, no. Well, it's to have these big things spring up, on, like unanticipated, unbidden. I would unbidden, say unbidden, unanticipated. Mm-hmm. It's that can be jarring. I, I think mean, this is why responsible people like sock away money for these things. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder what it's like to be those people. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, and and then today, today our refrigerator just stops. Yeah, you know it's that that old joke. Is your refrigerator running? I could have said no. Mm. <laughs> you call me and ask me that. No, it's not running. Apparently, it's guess. Ask me. Ask me what. Let's do another one of those things. Oh, okay. All right, you, you just ask me what's wrong with the refrigerator. Hey, uh, Christian, what's wrong with the refrigerator? Bad motherboard. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the truth. When Meredith said that upstairs, I laughed because that sounds so absurd. But then again, you know, as Cory Doctorow has been saying these last year or two, like we're getting to the point where we basically live and work and move around in big computers, planes. (laughs) cars just right and computers i just get the image of as you say that i get the image of you like wandering around like in tron or something yeah, like that oh, over there cool. <laughs> um and then then the computers are also in us right so oh pacemakers oh boy other implantable oh boy medical technology so you know or, or maybe it's just a hearing aid mm-hmm. do you um, have a special rage chip oh <laughs> I don't think I need a rage chip. <laughs> but if I had one that could just turn on, all it did is just just kind of uh, turn on your natural rage mm. engine. Yeah. And I could just turn it on at, at will. That would be pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> there are times in my life where I, where uh, I could use a little Joe rant. <laughs> I'm sure that it would make faculty meetings more fun. Because <laughs> you could just 
you know, just you could you could add a, a new just level just of spice it. to the conversation. Yeah, sure, just sure. Mm. Hit the button. Um, so there's that. Um, today when we were talking on the phone, uh, I raised my phone to my ear and and I kept hitting the buttons with my cheek. Right. Something wrong with the proximity sensor. Oh. Now that may not be an ongoing problem, but just as you were walking up here, just as you drove up up, up to uh, Turner, um, well, not Turner, this is Oral Argument World Headquarters. Yes. Um, I was like, you know, as one does screwing around with a phone yep. and, uh, locks up on me, locks up, won't, won't, so th- I've had phone issues today. All right. So you are not to touch my phone. Do you know the other thing about the, about phone? This is what people tune in for. I think, do you know, <laughs> do you know the other, the, the other horrible thing that's happened to me? No. All right. What, um, I bought a case for my phone. You did the battery case, the battery case. Now, now see, you gave it away Oh, shit. because, because the, <laughs> The right, the right question is why did you do that? Because of course, how do I feel about cases? You you're not a fan. Oh of cases. my gosh, I hate cases for phones. No, although you will be um, when when you get around to getting an iPhone six, as I suspect you will someday. Um, not at this rate. You will <laughs> you will want a case for it because the thing is as slippery as a bar of soap. I was going to say a baby seal. Yeah, are they actually slippery? It feels much more slippery. Mm-hmm. Than the five, I'm, I know. I meant, the, sure. I meant the baby seal because I, I didn't. I've I've held the iPhone six. I know that that's slippery. You know it's slippery. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I wouldn't. I don't. I don't like that. I, although I do like the feel of it better than. But the, but the upshot is that my phone was uh was I've got an uh, an iPhone five. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hate to. This is not an advertisement. Don't get one if you don't want one. Right. I'm not. I'm not pushing it. In right. fact, what I'm about to say may make you not want to get one. Because uh, after two years, the battery starts to kind of go and yeah, get to that thing where it does, gets like 35% and all of a sudden it's at zero. Yeah. And I've, um, because we finally got away from those fake plans where you subsidize your phone and all that. So we, we went to a, a, a carrier which has what I would consider more honest pricing. And so all of our phones now are unsubsidized, unlocked. We don't deal with the subsidy. Right. So the upshot is if I can make this phone last for three years or perhaps even four I'm paying a lot less for my phone. Yeah, sure. Right? Right. And uh, that's not going to work if it keeps dying. So Correct. I got, so I broke down and I bought a $30 battery case, the one recommended by the wire cutter. Okay. Uh, Love wire cutter, by the way. Best, good, great site. Great concept, R- great site. Well great executed. Site. Yeah. And it's got a home one too called? Uh, Sweet home. Sweet home. That one's very good too. Yeah. I looked up, <laughs> I looked up best refrigerator today. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Uh, as much as I hate putting a case on my phone, I, I finally broke down and put this. So, how did you figure out it. that your refrigerator needs a new motherboard? Uh, it's another guy. Came you had over. a repair person. Yeah, come. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Because it could have been the compressor. <laughs> did, I, did I mention that already in the well, show? Yeah, you're sure you never know. I'm already into the Talisker, so I don't remember yeah, well, what I, 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 I need to be. Believe me, everyone knows. And then, of course, my my son broke. Yeah. Because he ran 102 fever the other night yep. home from school at a time when, let's just face it, he does not need to be staying home from school. No. It's getting close to the end of the semester. Yeah, he needs He's got to, a lot of work to do. He yep. needs to be in there, right? So, yeah, absolutely. So I went, I went with him yesterday over to one of those dock in the boxes. Um, mm-hmm. Nice people. But it's an urgent care center, right? Sure, so, sure. Yeah. Um, sat there for a while and they I've ran used, various tests. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've used those a few times in the last few years and I mm-hmm. found them to be perfectly good. All right. I think um, seven minutes in, I think we've about covered it <laughs> for today. So I think... Uh, right, I you're think smiling. I li- Did you see the Star Wars trailer? So good. Mm. <gasps> wow. Watched it three times. Yeah. Loved it. Does it make you wish you were out making movies? No. Really? Why not? It makes me wish I were watching that movie. Mm. I, I have no talent to make a movie. No, that, that, that's not, this is about desire, not talent. 
Uh, well, I don't desire to do things that which I'm profoundly lacking in talent. No, see, that's my curse. I, I do. I very much desire to do things that I'd be terrible at. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, it's a, it's, it's not easy being me, Joe. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I didn't say I'm not terrible at the things I actually have been doing, but I, mm-hmm. I don't. That's not how I mentally process them. So we should say this is another evening show. It is an evening uh, show. You're, we have, you're we flying are, tomorrow. Uh, we are each one another's guest. That's true. There is yeah. no additional guest. So the um, the beverage tonight is Paul's Talisker rather than Bunny's coffee because right. of the because of the late hour. Yes, um, which is fitting and delightful. Uh, very, so we very raise delightful. a glass to Paul again. Cheers, listener Cheers. Paul. Cheers to listener Paul. Um, okay, so we are going to do some substantive things today. Oh, we are. Shoot. Oh yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? Well, we have some follow up that we did not get to last week that we put yes, off. Listener Adam. Had, yeah. First is a uh, listener Adam, uh, longtime listener. Uh, Friend of the show. I, I would say so. Sure. I would say absolutely. You, um, you bet. One of the show's best friends. And um, he, he had some thoughts uh, about, I'll, I'll mention some of them. I think you'll mention some of the others. He had th- some thoughts about our, our lines episode with uh, Dave Fagundis. So, such a great episode. Yeah. And a great article, Not too. because of us, because of Dave. He was terrific. It's a fantastic article. It is a fantastic article. Um, and, and he says... Um, he, he, and Adam, I don't remember, to say the truth, I don't remember how much of this we talked about on the show and how much this is kind of Adam kind of just adding to what we talked about or if it's adding something new. But in any case, um, he, he talks about how uh, you know, physical presence in a line is, is a, can be a proxy not just for your desire to get the thing, but it's a proxy for, he calls it a proxy for fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might quibble, I might think of it as a fair proxy for something, right? And people evaluate the fairness of the proxy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a, a line is a proxy for how much you want the thing, because if you want it a lot, you show up early to get at the front of the line, right? Oh, and right. your willingness to stand in the line is also a proxy for how much you sure. want the thing. And so, and it's a sort of sweat equity idea that you're, you know, you're really putting your shoulder to it in the way that you can for this thing, which is to spend your time, mm-hmm. which equalizes folks because most people are relatively equal at one level in their time, of course, if you think about it as opportunity cost, that isn't true. Right. Right. Some people would be giving up a bigger salary, for example, to wait for an hour, but, but it feels more equalizing. Right. I think subjectively. It, it's a transaction in an alternative currency, right? Um, where, where I guess it's kind of, count- I haven't really thought about this, but it almost is a counterbalanced kind of currency. If you can't pay for someone to stand in line for you, right? because actually the, the standing in line is more expensive for the people who make more. Yeah. I so in really a way, you're, way. You're, you, if you, if you have less cash that you could dispose in that way, or your salary maybe is lower, so you're foregoing less by taking time to be in the line. Um, yeah. In a way you're better off than the person who has a lot of cash and a much higher salary. But um, I overstate that because, of course, uh, people who are, you know, working two jobs and can't, you know, if they miss work, get fired. Obviously, well, they, right. actually, I mean, they clearly, have a lot more at stake. Yeah, so, there's a know. whole different set of yeah, circumstances yeah, yeah. That, that are correlated with being paid less. So I guess the, the upshot of that conversation is what exactly in terms of your effort is signified by your presence in line is really kind of tricky to figure out, right? It is. It's it's very, hard to very generalize, maybe. But um, – but what he so he's pointing to the fairness, and it, he he says as a proxy for fairness, I would say the fairness of the proxy. I wonder if listener Adam would agree. Um, but he says, take for example a movie a moviegoer's agitation upon seeing that someone is using coats and his stretched out limbs to save four empty seats in a prime location. Uh, the perceived unfairness is that the seat saving group is evading the suffering or sacrifice needed to claim the seats. Get there earlier, after all. 
So this is someone who's, pe- uh, well, having four friends grab popcorn can seem unfair to the person who decided not to get popcorn so she can search for a seat. You know yeah. what I mean by that? Or do you know what he means? I do. I do. I, I agree with it. I mean, it's like, there's a, you do perceive it, but I think we need to break it into two situations. One is where one person gets there early and, and, you know, Dave talks about this in the piece, right? This, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, people's responses to cutting right. in line and, right. and, and that is very different depending on, you know, well, so. But, but in is, a group of yeah. four or five people, a division of labor between, you know, uh, you guys go get the food. I'll get we, the two of us will go get seats. I mean, this, I think that's reasonable in context. We were all there. We're all working on it together. It's not like, oh, three people are going to show up right at the last second. They're not even at the movie theater yet. Right. That's a different so I'm situation. Go spread for you. my coats and I'm going to go stand in line for the food and blah, 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 blah. So, that's, so me, tell, that's different to me. I think. Um, so let me, let me paint you a word picture here. Wouldn't you think? That's, let me, yes. Let me paint you a word picture. You're at the new Star Wars film. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, it's jam-packed. It's jam-packed. And in fact, you get in there and you're not going to be able to sit with your friends because it's so packed. Wow. And there's one, there's, there's one person in there who's got the... Let me stop you right there. Okay. <laughs> in, that, in that Star Wars, in that Star Wars, that night, we're all friends. <laughs> so it isn't true I can't sit with my friends. I can't sit with my closest friends. Oh, I think there's one person who's not a friend, and that's the person who's sitting in the middle of the theater saving four or five seats in a row, and, <laughs> the, <laughs> and those people aren't even in the theater yet. That person's already been killed. <laughs> <laughs> and their body hidden behind the drapes well, next right, to the so, screen. So that's one situation, right? And and you you agree that's bad behavior and, you know, there's something about queuing. And this is not even queuing. Well, this there's is about, just too much pressure with that many people that anxious about that many seats. So the, yeah. the normal, kind of normal operating procedure, w- which is much more mellow because mm-hmm. – there are ton- there are more seats than there are people. If the movie's been out for a few weeks, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But it's just a totally different vibe. So, the first, you know, or the yeah. first weekend of Star Wars is going to be complete mayhem. Mm-hmm. Because everyone is anxious. Mm-hmm. So no, they just wouldn't put up with that. They'd be like, I-, "I see your coats, and I'm about to, you know, stomp them under my feet. So you might want to move them." <laughs> I I would love to see your. The, the Joe Miller sequel to the Dave Fagundis piece, which is <laughs> words of wisdom about lines. You know? <laughs> Joe's vibe theory of, uh, <laughs> of, of line etiquette. And maybe I'm atypical. I don't well, know, here's maybe, the, maybe other people would, would experience very different vibes. Uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting. To I ask. agree with both of those things. Um, the, so the other situation, though, the person saving seat, you said there's no problem. People were just kind of dividing up the labor, right? Sure. So... That you don't see any um, unfairness there, and this is really what plugs into the paper a little bit. Um, if five, six, say ten people are there, right? Two of them say seats on either end. Four of them are going to get popcorn. The other four are going to the bathroom in in uh, in shifts. You know how you know that thing, kind of thing goes, right? Um, no problem, you think, because they're all there, right? But they're not suffering to the same extent that you, the solo movie goer, is suffering. Because you have to keep your butt in the seat unless you got a jacket. But say you forgot your jacket. And even if you did bring your jacket, maybe you wouldn't use it. The point is this. The, the bigger the group, the greater the economies of scale. Yeah. And so if you think that physical presence is valuable as a signifier, maybe it's because you think it, it's a proxy for the amount of kind of sweat equity as you said or suffering or whatever the person is willing to go through to get the thing right but people who show up with an army of of folks to spread out the labor are not 
engaging in the same amount of suffering because they're taking advantage of these economies of scale. Um, that is true. And I think... Is Darcy um, bumping the mic? Uh, she might be a little bit. And Causing I, all kinds of editing problems for me, Darcy. I think, uh, I think, I, I, I like what you, I like how you analyze it. Um, I think it's an important point. And I think that maybe in that Duke sport, uh, arena, uh, instance that Dave talked about. And I mean, maybe there are some instances where the line is a, a frequent enough occurrence in this high pressure context where some subsidiary norms develop, right? Mm -hmm, As mm -hmm. opposed to this sort of random encounter where there happens to be that occasion where you were at the theater, these other people were at the theater, you're feeling a bit pressured because you're alone and you don't have any help. The other people have an economy of scale. Right. Because they they could divide their labor in these different tasks. Yeah, and I forget in Um, Dave's paper how the Duke tickets situation well, works it sounded that, yeah. very elaborate and it sound like it's it's yeah. it's gotten uh, it has very elaborate norms there there are pub there there are uh, you know documents that describe these various rules uh, and standards that are used and i think in a context like that uh maybe an, a, an issue like this if it were a frequent uh, concern or worry or an occurrence people would actually tackle it right they'd be like actually you know what that's not really consistent with the way we handle this because cause you really not it's not fair for a team of five people to be able to um, hedge by splitting these tasks uh, compared to most people are only in pairs or solo. Right. So we need to design the rules to take care of the more common participant, which is a single individual or a pair. Wasn't that movie Hands on a Hard Body? Excuse me. <laughs> look at this look that you get. I think it was. I think it was a documentary, and it was called that provocative title. But but the title but, doesn't refer to about anything. the Duke. No, lines? It, no, no, no. It, it's about um, it's about the people in this contest to win a truck. Oh. Who have to keep their hands on the truck, and if you take your hand off the truck, you, then you, yeah. then you lose. You're right? out of contest. Like, sure. That is the ultimate in allocation of a scarce good based on pure physical desire for the thing mm-hmm. of course still ignoring the fact that different people have different physical capacities right yeah no good way to do it um right like should a here's a interesting question um putting aside any of the governing uh, uh local state or federal statutes um should a person who is wheelchair bound uh, be able to participate in that contest are you asking me I mean, they're, they're very differently situated with respect to the very thing that's going to be the criterion that's used to determine who wins. That's right. So, so differently situated, in fact, that it, 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 the people running the contest might say, that's just not a fair, it's not a fair contest. Right. For the other participants. Right. And, and even if the contest people didn't reach that conclusion, maybe other participants, when they arrive, might raise a fuss. Hey, wait a minute. This isn't, this doesn't seem right. Right. Cause, cause, because yeah, there's a variety, you know, you're short, I'm tall, I'm fat, you're thin, whatever. I'm a little older, you're a little younger, but, but that person is just in a very different situation. And, and you need to be basically comparable. Right. To be fair, because Which we, is we sort accept of implicit some unfairness. most of the time, but in that yeah. instance might become explicit. Because what people are really agreeing to is like the person who wants it most on the day right. should get it. Right. And and, and we kind of ignore the fact that we don't have, we're operating from different baselines, right? I mean, that's like an inconvenient truth in a way, right? That And it kind of washes out over the full run of all the participants. 
And maybe that's what makes contests fun, right? It's the diminutive person who you thought would be maybe wimpier than the... Right. Maybe they turn out to be the winner. And they turn out just, you know, through raw desire and people root for them. You know, yeah. who knows? Who knows? Um, all right. So I've got one more. I think there's... Well, he's... Um, he actually made the um, uh, the point about... Um, well, he makes another point about online proxies, like the move to online. It kind of eliminates that in a way, right? It just becomes a... A mechanism for allocation right. which is random and therefore fair right uh, i mean random i mean you know it's like the apple watch thing where you had to wake up at like three in the morning on the <laughs> east coast did you know about this i did not know that yeah i mean it was like uh midnight pacific time midnight in cupertino three in the morning in the mm. east coast and then who knows you know other other countries in europe and australia had it better i think uh ah. so if you wanted one you had to like and apparently if you had like uh uh an iphone 5s or later you know the thumb, you can go to the apple store app and you could just order it really quickly hmm. i don't know you wake up at three you could order it within like 30 seconds go back to you never even know that you ordered it if you wake up and you know just do it in like 30 seconds wow um did you do that by the way no no neither did i yeah not gonna get one um but um uh you know that that's just a very different mechanism like you know it's almost random yeah you you might have to like quickly join the lottery but if it's open long enough maybe you could do it and it's uh uh Anyway, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with it. But he, so he does a couple more things in here. Um, uh, he talks about high f- frequency trading. These are all really, uh, these were really great points. Um, yeah, that it was he made. a great email. Um, he, he, he was, uh, gave a shout out to two other things that I'll mention. One is, uh, to our infinite jest references. He has, a, uh, added some more details that made me smile as I remember, uh, reading the book. Uh, the other thing was, uh, to compliment us and John Pfaff on the episode that we did with John Pfaff about, um, about um, uh, incarceration, incarceration rates. rates and what's causing them. Yep. Uh, and how really, you might reduce them. And yeah. yeah, he really liked it about, you know, thinking about empiricism and quantitative studies um, and what this means for lawyers. So this is another reason to have John back on to talk about empiricism more generally, I think. Um, I really, really enjoyed that episode as it well. It was great. Uh, what, what else do you have, Joe? Oh, I, d- I went into the uh, second to last paragraph. You were going to say something about the last paragraph, I think? Well, uh, I... Uh, it continues the math point and is simply, you know, asking you in particular because you're a mathematician. Oh, but, right. Um, but, uh, but more generally, um, sort of, you know, w- w- people who have quantitative studies backgrounds of some kind and uh, who become lawyers, uh, how does that affect how they approach law, how they think about law, what they can accomplish with law? I mean, I do think it's an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting question. I, for example, did a lot of statistical work as a psychology grad student mm-hmm. and did some statistical consulting for hire, actually, uh, right. during that time, just to earn some extra money, and uh, and and studied a bit of math as an undergrad. Uh, uh, and, of course, you're a, an accomplished uh, math person. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we I think sometimes we do come at the... We probably have you to a greater degree than I do, but... Um, uh, you know, there's a comfort with approaching things with some quantitative tools that we have. Um, and that my sense is some people who were drawn to law were drawn to it because they didn't or they think of themselves as not having those math or quantitative tools. And they were told there'd be no math. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, if you taught law, you have, in fact, probably heard a student make that joke at some point. I was told there would not be any math. Yeah. Right? Um, I always have to make that joke myself to preempt it when I teach like present value calculations. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I'm guessing our good friend Lisa Milet has, has heard this joke. Although you would think that as a tax professor, uh, 
the students in that class would not be feeling that, right? They would be like, ah, you know, this is a class where I like to use You would think, yeah, you would think. Uh, Sort of self-selecting. It's not a required course. Um, Anywho, so what is your thought about that? I mean, Um, in a way, this is like... it's a complicated conversation. You know, the mathematical man is the future of law and always will be, right? This was, uh, I mean, Holmes Holmes, says this a hundred years ago. Yeah, I... um... I think it's quite or earlier complicated because I, I, you said it yourself about tools and 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 it's interesting. So people who who have come into law using a math from a math related discipline are comfortable using mathematical tools, you know. With and and it doesn't bother them; they don't get thrown by it, right? Right. Um, I probably don't come at it the same way because I have a hard time using the tool without breaking it down. Like, I just, that's not what I ever really did, you know? I mean, so so I imagine in psychology, you would find, I don't know, a formula or a distribution or a method, and you would just find out which one was appropriate for your task, and then you would just use that method, right? And you would have some explanation for how it worked, how to calculate errors. Is that, am I roughly correct, or did you do? Yeah, I mean, the statistical, uh, you know, the, the, the two years that I was in that program, uh, all four semesters, there was one or more advanced graduate level statistical coursework. Um, and so, you know, we were learning a lot about what, how the stuff operated. Um, but we weren't deriving, we weren't developing our own new statistical methodologies. We were learning right. established statistical methodologies. Yeah. And, 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 when it's and quantitative and like and, experimental yeah. design techniques and the like. Right. And I think the connection between that use of mathematics and law and especially modern legal legal scholarship is quite direct you know i think people who can use tools are going to first of all be able to talk to other people in other disciplines much better uh on issues involving the use of such tools but also can do them themselves and and i never really did that you know i was you know my training is in theorems and proofs right it's in thinking about what's true and it's in trying to generalize things that you see and 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 then trying to figure out whether that result holds generally or not it's in um this kind of process of kind of creative induction and then deduction so that's so more based that. the more in a way that's that's closer to the the sort of the the root structures of law itself it's not quantitative right. analysis it's just legal reasoning right and and so you know i never really did stats i did have a class as an undergraduate and it was um as another story about that but it was stats were never something that interested me until until i came to law school i i, I think they're fascinating i mean there's a lot of interesting there and i wish i had taken more of an interest in it uh when i was doing law because it would have i mean doing math because it'd been so easy to pick up at least some rudimentary knowledge so sure so when i think about regressions i kind of go back to first principles and i kind of try to you know i try to figure out how the curve fitting is going and all that so yep. uh so it's harder for me in a way because i'm just i'm not used to just picking up the tool without asking a lot of questions about it and understanding why it works so i pick up a tool and instead of moving forward with it i move backward mm. you know what i mean yep. like that's my impulse i mean right. i'm not saying i can't do differently it's just that's the way that i think about mathematical tools but it is um yeah, you know, like I, as a tool builder or a tool maker instead of a tool user. Yeah, and I and I was definitely I was definitely tool using, not making, right? Uh, or or inventing new ones, right? For sure. And and actually, you know, when I <laughs> applying stuff was always harder for me than anyway. But uh, so so when I came to law school, I think that having come fresh out of a a math program, it was very easy for me to read cases. Yeah, easier than for most people, and and everybody, you know, they 
everybody was super smart in my class and they, they all got to be, um, some of them were just as good as I was at reading cases in the beginning and they all got to be as good or better than I was by the end of it. So there's, you know, there's no permanent advantage or anything. I think I just had a, an ability to kind of read cases and see the analytical structure in them right. faster than others because I've been doing that for so long, mm-hmm. right? You just see analytical structures. That's kind of what you, what you do. Um, and this process of kind of inducing principles and deducing results from principles, that's the whole ball game in yeah. mathematics. So there, there is a huge connection between at a, at a higher level than practice, right. Of actually doing the thing, but at, at a, at a conceptual level, I think there is a huge affinity between the doing of higher mathematics. So yep. we, we would call it at the level of proofs and stuff like that. And thinking about how cases fit together. I think that's, I think that's right. And, and I compare that to my undergrad experience with, you know, the math that I did uh, in that context was more like what you're describing in terms of, you know, working through Euclid and Ptolemy and Newton and... Yeah, I just learned this about you the other day that you worked through all of Euclid's elements in, at St. John's. Is that right? Yeah, a good chunk of it. I think most of it. It's it's totally cool, isn't it? When you... Um, I, I was doing this the other day. It's really so, great. We did some Lobachevsky too, and mm-hmm. I think that was senior year, so it's non non Euclidean geometry, mm-hmm. and did some Dedekind, and did some, you know, and of course, I, no, we, I did the, I did. we did the Einstein relativity papers in the math class because yeah, they're, never they're principally that. math math papers. Yeah, uh, really. Yeah, um, and uh, and so it was great. Just the that, jargon. The jargon's different. That was always frustrating for me as a mathematician when you because I did work with. Um, engineers and, and mm-hmm. physicists on occasion my professor was kind of had a joint appointment and um the the jargon differences were always kind of jarring you mm. know it, the things that that they would find useless debating they they didn't want to think about certain things <laughs> uh and and for their application it didn't matter right but there was like things like singularities things where things break down are very important to mathematicians and are oftentimes ignored by engineers i mean this is just my rough experience with right. things um I forgot why I was breaking but in though. The, the whole uh, the whole thing about working through proofs, yeah, 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 and and all these different contexts in which you 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 wind up doing that, um, yeah, that was I, I found when I, when I got to law school, I found um, reading cases as a one L extremely familiar. Like it felt very very comfortable to me. Yeah, um, yeah, that's and and it's that part of your brain I think that makes it. Um, and, I don't, and I'm not sure that you can't get this from other kinds of analytical enterprises. If you're deeply analytical yeah. about um, English literature sure. or something else, I bet there's a similar kind of experience. And it is, yep. it's something at a, at a higher conceptual level. It doesn't matter that it's math or that it's uh, literature or that it's art or whatever it is. But there has to be some, if you, if you practice that connection between inducing and guessing about things and then deducing to check yourself in in a kind of non-ideological, non-results-driven way. Like all you're trying to do is like to get at what's true. And you're doing that through this really super iterative kind of induction. Yeah, you're really cycling back and forth quite a bit. Uh, And uh, yeah, it's, I think you get, you, you get a, uh, you get a confidence in the power of that way of, of working through something. And there's nothing like I can tell you, and you, you you've experienced this if you've done you know proofs, especially uh, with Euclid, and and this is the way it always is when you when you see why something is true when the proof is finished, it is there's just nothing. I mean, it's just amazing, right? <laughs> you get that great. little jolt of whatever it is, right, in your right. brain. Some kind of neurotransmitter is emitted when you see truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think I blogged about this one time. How even mathematics, right? Even recognizing something is true mathematically is an emotion. 
You know what I mean? Well, the aesthetic, it's like an aesthetic, it's an aesthetic response for me. Like, yeah, the, the, you'll hear people say, and it's in a way it sounds hokey, but if you, if you have had the experience of just feeling that something is so elegant, like it really, it's, it hangs together so seamlessly and so powerfully and, and it moves the mind and that, and you feel that movement and it's, that's enjoyable. I agree. It, yeah, there, there's some results that just feel right, right? I mean, and you know it before you've really checked it. It's like, I've, I've bridged the gap, yep. right? Um, and I actually uh, was lucky enough as a graduate student to see Paul Erdish talk. Mm. Do you know Paul Erdish? He's a famous I, mathematician. I a lot of stuff in number theory and other, I mean, just yep. has known for his, uh, the number of papers that he published. He yes. was kind of itinerant. Especially I with co-authors. Yes, right. And so that's where the Erdish number comes from. Yep. This is, you know, if you publish a paper with Erdish, your Erdish number is one. If you uh, publish, publish with a paper, who publishes with, yeah. then it's, then your Erdish number is two. If you publish with someone who published a paper with Erdish, who, uh, if you publish with someone who published with someone who published a paper with Erdish, your Erdish number is three, right? And I bet there's a Lemley number now. That probably is. For people who... It's so odd that you say that because that's the other topic I want to talk about, but we will come back to that. We, we will come back to it. Don't worry. Um, uh, an amendment is, and this is one thing, I think it came up in his talk when I saw him. This is in maybe 94 or something. This is shortly before his death, I think. I think. And my memory's hazy. I'm also into my Talisker. But, uh, <laughs> but you publish two Erdish papers with Erdish. You publish two papers with Erdish, and your Erdish number is a half. Three, oh. and your Erdish number is a third. And so the point is, the more you publish with Erdish, the, the closer you approach Erdish, whose Erdish number is zero. Oh, Isn't it beautiful? Nice. Yeah. You just, but it's asymptotic. You, well, you would want to approach Erdish in the limit. You can only approach Erdish in the limit. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so one thing he said during that talk, which I thought was totally cool, he was showing different results and about papers he'd come up with and usually involving a story of sleeping over at someone's house. You know, cause he, <laughs> he was itinerant. I mean, he just right, went around we the world. We would talk about this and then we decided blah. Yeah, yeah, we'd wake up and have breakfast and we'd be writing a paper and we'd co-author a paper together. It's so fun. It's amazing. Like, why? why, do, why? That's what I need to do. <laughs> Look, let me tell you, if you should be a paper from every time I've been to this house, why isn't there? Because we're, we have all kinds of ideas. We have lots of ideas. We don't write them down. We talk into these microphones. Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) a big mistake. (laughs) Yeah. In the legal academy, this, this kind of activity is not rewarded as it should be. Is that right? (laughs) If you're listening and you'd like to endow a university for, for excellence in podcasting, maybe you could help change the norm about what talking into this microphone is, (laughs) is equal to a Lemley number of infinity. (laughs) But (laughs) this gets us no closer, but not at all. It beats the alternative, Joe, which is you and I talking into thin air to each other. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. At least it's recorded somewhere. Listeners, let us know if you think this is superior to not recording at all. mm, mm. Well, I can tell you more people have listened to our podcast than have downloaded my papers. I don't know whether that says more about our paper, my papers, but any, anyway, so he was talking about authoring all of these things and 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 about getting results. And then he would go back to that same result, you know, a proof about like something conjecture about prime numbers and he'd prove something about the number of primes, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said that in his mind, and it wasn't literal necessarily, but in, but, but God kept a book. Right. And in the book was the real reason for the thing. Haven't I said this on the show? I feel no, like we've done this on the definitely show before. Not, definitely okay, not. You're sure? The I, listeners can tell us. I can't recall it. Um, if it's happened, I don't recall it. If I ha- if, if it has happened, we should talk about this more than once because this is, this sticks in my mind. Okay. And, and, um, 
that, that, that God has a book, and in the book is the real reason for things, right? And when you see a proof that tells you why something is true and you feel it, you say, ah, oh, that, that is why it's true, right. then that's the book proof. Because there are all kinds of other proofs. And, you know, anybody who's done any mathematics mm, knows right. the process of going through. And you get a result and you can check each step and you can tell that starting from the premise, each step is correct. And you end up with, and I'm, I'm pointing my hands in the air right here from top to bottom. And at the bottom, you end up with a conclusion. And each step is correct. And therefore, it must be true, right? And you can, so you can, you know, prove something indirectly by supposing that it's false and then deriving a result which can't possibly hold. And therefore, you know, uh, uh so there are lots of ways to prove things, but they don't all really grab the, they don't, you know, in the human mind, they don't feel like the real reason. They feel true, but it's different than feeling like the real reason for something. And so the book is the place where the real reasons for things are, the perfect proofs mm. for things. I thought it was such a beautiful idea, right? And and I think, unlike Erdish, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, with um, um, supernatural books, uh, it's supernatural. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure he was saying it that way, but what I mean is like metaphysical books, books beyond. Right. right. What it really has to do with is the connection between reason and mind for me, right? There are some reasons which speak to, to the commonality of the human mind. And there are other reasons that while reasons, and we can't deny them because we can check them and each little step feels true. In the aggregate, it only feels true because we know that that the little steps are connected and are also true. Where there are other proofs where we look at the whole thing and we say, that's why. That's the reason, right? So there's a little bit of this in law when you read a case, right? That, that Where you feel like it's right, not because of the rhetoric, but because, wow, I never saw it that way. It opens my mind to a way of seeing this problem. And it lays out the way things fit together and the reasons so that you feel like you would know what to do when you saw a slightly different or even a much different set of facts right. or problem or variation because you feel like you've gotten to something underneath the particular facts right to something more structural right and that you'd be able to use that yeah, this is exactly, and this is why my scholarship, I've had a few ideas like this. I mean, the one is the public-private distinction stuff that I've worked on, where when I hit on public or private institutional character and looked at it, like, it explained to me what the real reasons were, in my mind, like, emotionally, the real reasons for the differences in treatment between, say, yeah. contract and torts and other things, right? Like, that gets it, right? Yep. And I can explain it other ways rhetorically possible to explain in other ways and even maybe what i'm saying is equivalent to other ways sure right um but but that's the one that grabbed me it's also what for me how i experience it's how i think to myself about the 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 portions of the legal doctrines that i spend a lot of time with so for example today and next week teaching um at the end of my patent law course the a unit on patentable subject matter under Section 101. There's recent Supreme Court cases yeah. that have which looked, we've talked about, which and we the, have, and, and, there, and there are a number of them. And the court's really been struggling. And I and I think one reason why these cases uh, feel uh, n like they aren't gelling for people uh, is because the court hasn't quite figured it out yet, and it's so apparent that they haven't, they don't have that story there. They don't have, right. the, they don't know the reasons why yet. They know p some pieces of it, uh, and some of those pieces seem pretty interesting and 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 pretty compelling, at least to me. Um, but it's definitely not it. They haven't worked it through yet, 
Uh, and it's and interesting so, you say that. In, in takings and exaction law, which I also which I teach in land use, and which are interesting to me just philosophically, these are doctrines which uh, require um, uh, takings doctrine. It's a doctrine which requires compensation when the government takes property, yeah. right? Um, and when should we compensate people not for physical takings but for regulations which restrict what people can do with their property? Mm-hmm. Um, and exactions involves <laughs> not actual takings, but but instances where the government says we'll give you some kind of discretionary benefit, like a permit to develop your land, but only if you'll give us this thing, which would be a taking if we took it directly, right? Right. Um, these doctrines don't hang together. You know, you can look at them, and you can have there are some theoretical explanations of why you do some things. But the fact is you're, you're led irrevocably into various puzzles, yep. like you know, this famous denominator problem, why yep. it's a taking if you have a bunch, if you have a little bit of land, but not a taking if you have more land. And, and certainly the latest, uh, the Kuntz case in uh, the, the Supreme Court decided about whether a demand for money can constitute um, an exaction. Uh, we won't get into it now. Maybe we'll do a show on this. But um, these are... These lead to all kinds of puzzles and just kind of pragmatic answers which make no, like, philosophical sense, right? And, and I think it's because um, there isn't that unified reason, right? Yeah. There are these reasons which are popping around that don't fit together very well. And it feels, leaves me feeling in, in these, patent, in these uh, patent of subject matter cases, it leaves me feeling very much, which I said to the students today, uh, it leaves me feeling very much like, I know I don't know what to do in the next case. <laughs> with confidence, right? Yeah, I, I, I have a feeling of of what a, a a route that might be plausible, but I don't have confidence that if if these same jurists were confronted with that set of facts, that they would see it the way I did. Even though I'm trying to t- internalize what they've said, were there reasons in these prior cases and project them forward? Like I, I'm not confident about it yet. Because I don't have the reason yet. I you don't, don't have the reason. They, they haven't laid it out for me in a way that I can, that I can piece together well enough to feel like I understand it. That I could teach it to somebody else. Right. Uh, you know, it's a so doctrinally, it's a very troubled area right now because I do think they're 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 just they're kind of grinding through right. and working hard, uh, and and they can see that there is something important to accomplish here about the the fact that. Uh, Exclusion rights are are a, are mixed bag, right? You, you right. they get you benefits, but they also impose. But costs. that's that's finally like a, an empirical recognition of a problem, right? Rather than a pure theoretical answer. The pure theoretical answer is, if you want somebody to make something, you have to give them an incentive, right? And therefore, a patent is a solution to the problem of sloth because it encourages people to make. And you know, other people have other theories about. You know, Paul Heald has a theory about like transactions and patents, etc. Uh, you mentioned him earlier. Mark Lemley just has a paper that I just saw today, right? About um, faith-based IP. Have you ah, seen yes. it? Uh, I I've seen the abstract. Uh, I have not read the paper. Yeah, I I did read it. Um, because as you know, um, why, why don't I just ask you this? Let's let's role play again. Okay. Um, Joe, you be, you, you, Joe, you, you, be you be me. No, you be me. Oh no, I want you to be you. No, 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 no. You're gonna be me. Oh, okay, okay. So so this is this is me, Christian. I'm gonna. Uh, this is me, Joe. Okay. Now, I'm going to pretend to be Joe. All right. All right. Can you wait on it? Because I need to bleach my beard. Can you hold on a sec? <laughs> no. Actually, you don't. Looks okay. pretty good. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Ouch. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, um. Christian. Yes. <laughs> it's so silly. Um, so silly. Well, well, 
What should we re- what should we do to reform patent law? Uh, there seem to be all these problems in patent law, and the Supreme Court doesn't quite know what it's doing. Repeal it all. <laughs> repeal it all. <laughs> that worked pretty well. Oh, well. Let's let's break character now. I have to turn around. Oh, and, okay. you know, like 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 any good impressionist. Right. I turned around in my chair. All right. And put on the face, the Joe right. face. It must be a relief to feel so thin again. <laughs> Now that you're you. <laughs> Everything's a relief with Paul's Talisker. You know what I mean? It's like a, just one constant relief. I'm, I, it's been a tough week. And I've, I, I have to say, every minute we've been recording, I feel better, which is probably why this is going to be a long show. Oh, no, boy. <laughs> no, it won't be. We're going to cut it off probably in about five minutes. I have not read uh, that Lemley essay. Uh, I, as I say, I, I think I read the abstract and, and I, you know, I read lots of uh, Mark's work. Uh, as many people do, uh, and uh, uh, have you read? You, did you read it? I, 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 well, I read it fast, so I didn't read all yeah. the footnotes. But I, you know, it. I read it because probably for you know to get that little jolt of confirmation bias. But um, <laughs> look, I, I, I'm a realist. I know how these things work. But the upshot is that it is true. We've amassed an enormous amount of empirical evidence about the um, about the malevolent um, effects. Malevolent. That's, that sounds too harsh, right? Because the effects themselves pretty harsh. The effects themselves have no intentions, right? right. But, but the mal effects, the malefactors. No, the reaction to of of, of IP in general, right? Yeah. Copyright and patent. But let's just focus on patent because he talks about IP and and copyright. We, you and I, have always agreed that trademark has to survive for various reasons. Um, yeah, I mean, it has. Because I, I do think it has purpose. pathologies, but I think it's indispensable in a way that patent and copyright are not. Right. You could get rid of patent and copyright tomorrow, and civilization would not fall apart. You get rid of trademark, and people are screwed. Well, private markets would just would just cease to function. I mean, it's Mad Max land, wouldn't you say? <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't say because that's a brand. Oh, oof. Well, but if there's no trademark, you can say it all you want, as can everyone else. Right. Boy, that really is Thunderdome. <laughs> Who runs Barter Town? <laughs> I'll tell you who. It's Master Blaster. That's, who runs That's damn right. <laughs> um, but so so the the piece is interesting. The piece is interesting because it because it gathers all this together. It's like you know. Um, finally, you know, I, I feel like it's like somebody who. It's not that none of you guys have been saying this in IP. A lot of you have, but but ill-informed people like me mm. uh, have been concluding for a while that this seems like more trouble than it's worth. Copyright and patent, in particular, patent. Copyright, shortened terms, but yeah. patent. Um, and so, so Mark um, uh, marshals a bunch of the, you know, he just cites a bunch of papers and said, "Look, this is these are problems." You know, the uh, the academic literature says, you know, some of it says maybe the only area where patent is justified is in pharmaceuticals, biotech, and I would say it's questionable there whether you need it, whether it wouldn't be better to do some other system of incentives, right? Which you could do, right? If that was the only place you needed this incentive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what it is, is that, that we're finally, you know, there's all this empirical evidence about the costs of running an exclusion regime, right? It's pat, it's patent trolls. It's, yeah. uh, the cost of searching, it's yeah. the cost of transaction, the cost of, 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 of not making improvements that we could make, you know, how much is this actually retarding drug discovery and other things because of patents? So like, we have some evidence about this. We have yeah. a lot of evidence about patent and copyright and their costs. Uh, yes. we have some evidence about their benefits. Um, and the response, so this is all about how the response of some people to this problem. The, pro- the response of people who have an interest in perpetuating the system is 
more or less to like sometimes he even points to a case where they funded some research and he cast aspersion on this research that was funded in other areas it's to change the focus well it's it was never really utilitarian to begin with it was about people deserving the fruits of their labors and so a retreat to kind of real property kind of lockean um uh, moral rights right rather than utilitarianism and of course to me this totally fails i mean it, 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 <laughs> you know you can say it you can be Sonny Bono and say, I think copyright ought to last forever as a moral matter, but it doesn't make you right, right? Because So even if no. you have these morals, the costs of these morals are immense. Yeah, so, right. So you can, you can um, this is the imperialism of, of uh, economic analysis, right? You can, you can translate the non-consequentialist argument back into consequentialism by talking about uh, its costs. Right. The costs of being a non-consequentialist. Right. Uh, Fair enough. And this is, you know, the classic example is the cost of, uh, you know, if, you, if you're non-consequentialist, you think lying is always wrong. You have to face up to lying to the uh, Nazi at the door about right. the Jewish people yeah, that you're hiding is, in your attic, right? That's the right. classic problem Kant in philosophy. Right, and that example, Kant certainly talked about lying to people at the door who are looking for somebody. Yeah. Uh, so, again, not, I haven't read the paper. Um, I, I do think it is... Not um, it, 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 I do think it's more than empty uh, uh, non-consequentialism to not because I don't think non-consequentialism is all empty, uh, but I think it's not just m- mere talk and changing the subject to say that uh, there could be. And in fact, who wrote this in the in the takings? Who wrote this in the table? Was it Frank Michaelman? There's a sort of a demoralization. That's Michaelman problem, yeah. right? Ma- Michaelman is all about. T- it's, it's funny that we just talked about takings in the same context, right? Right. right. But, but Michaelman wrote the famous paper grounding regulatory takings jurisprudence, which started in the 20th century. It was not, you know, it was didn't exist at the fa- at the founding. Sure. In fact, uh, it's the Holmes case, right? It's a, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's Pennsylvania coal, right? This the the case where um, uh, Pennsylvania tried to regulate to prevent uh, basically the collapse of yeah. home sites and and whole towns into right. uh, into coal veins as they were mined from underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but Michaelman's analysis is basically that uh, compensation for takings is justified, right? When the costs of uh, demoralization of people from obs- either themselves or seeing others. Mm-hmm. Uh, having property basically confiscated or wiped out by regulation, when that outweighs the costs of settlement, the costs of litigation, the costs yeah. of determining how much people have to be compensated, like so, you have to kind of balance those two things. It's a little bit yeah. beyond that, but that's the, the in a nutshell, so right? Of, you, yeah. And you could take that and port that over to there's there's sort of a, a a reliance idea of I did I I did make effort to come up with this new approach to something. Uh, if people are who, who, who I see didn't do anything other than imitate me as distinct from people who invested on their own and came up with their own version of the same thing, that's a different scenario, right? Right. But when I see that people who are just imitating me and imitating me precisely because what I did turned out to be a kind of important advance, um, that, that could be demoralizing in a con, in a way that would dynamically speaking, lead us to have many fewer innovations. I told you about this years ago. No, that's a speculation. But yeah. I, but the, there, years I, ago, I gave you a solution to this problem. Okay. Let's hear the solution. And then I want to make one other point about history, which I think no, is... Please the, make your point first. Okay. Well, it's, I do think it's worth... Uh, uh, 
even with all of its problems, and the patent system has many problems, I don't deny that at all. Um, and in fact, I was thinking this morning as I was getting ready for work that, you know, gosh, I, why aren't we having a conversation as a matter of patent policy about at least having a moratorium on new patent applications? Like there's a huge backlog at the patent office. Why not just have a moratorium for three or four years where yeah. they do not accept new applications? And other, as a test, look, as a test. Yeah, and, and include in the moratorium statute that it will sunset so you know the patent system will spring back into life on a particular day. So if you want to keep that a trade secret and try to patent it later, you're welcome to try that or you're welcome to try some other strategies. But what would it be like to sort of give ourselves a breather to work through this mountain of things we have that are, are sort of sitting there in a backlog, right? Would it be so bad to just take, right? So the fact that I'm willing to have little thoughts like that suggests I'm completely open to the idea that right. the patent system is profoundly troubled in many ways. And it's funny because, you know, cause the, it is. the standard story is that like patent is, is a substitute for trade secret, which other, which promotes disclosure, right? I mean, this is the, this is the, the dumb, dumb story that people like me have who don't work in this field, right? That the, the top line story is that well, I do think it solves some problems patent, right. that, that trade secret doesn't solve. But, but and of trade course, secret solves some problems right. patent doesn't solve. Mark Limley himself wrote a great article uh, in Stanford Law Review about trade secret as disclosure. Right? Trade se- one of the things that trade <laughs> secret does is promotes disclosure. And he has a it's really interesting argument. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so, so let me, but let me get yeah, back go, to this history going, point. Yeah. So, so the, the, the history, well, the history point is um, that the patent system with all its problems uh, you know, the first recognizably modern patent statute was enacted in the Republic of Venice in 1474, uh, which means, among other things, that when... That it's uh, gone sour. It means that it's it's past its shelf life at this point. That's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's another, it, it is a long time reason, ago. But, another but, reason to get rid of patents. But, but when, we, too when, old. We, when we included <laughs> the patent and copyright clause, or the progress clause, um, in the U.S. Constitution in 1789, uh, which is to say... Uh, 315 years after. Wasn't the Articles of Confederation? Do you know? I don't believe, I don't think there was a patent clause in the Articles. No. The states in the Confederation period, the states themselves were granting patents. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, huh. Uh, and in fact, there were some conflicts uh, in among people who were using using the shipping channels between New Jersey and New York, uh, <laughs> getting patents in one, and then the other person would have the patent in the other, and so you couldn't you don't say that the Confederacy caused problems. I'm shocked. <laughs> the Confederation. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. The, the Confederacy is something different. The confederacy also caused problems. Yes, We won't indeed. get to that. That's another um, show. Right. Because the <laughs> thing there was, the problem there was owning people, not patents. Well, um, yeah. now you've made it, that's not funny. But anyway, I, I was laughing. Okay. And I'm just saying you're I'm harsh- talking about a real problem. That was a problem. I owning know, but you're harsh my mellow. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> um... So let me get back to this Venice point. So this is the listeners. I think you're getting a, a slice of the real Joe Christian dynamic. Yeah, because wouldn't you, keep, you say? I I would say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I definitely would. <laughs> and so in so in 1789, <laughs> right? We write our constitution. We include the Progress Clause. 1789 is 315 years after 1474. If I've got my math right. Um, I'll say yes. There are fewer I didn't years, listen to the years. There are fewer years between us right now and 1789 than there were between 1789 and 1474. What, why do I bring that up? The patent system is very old. And even with all of its problems, over this period that will have its 
600th birthday in a few decades. Um, we seem to like, we, we look at patent law with all its problems and we say, I can't quit you. Right. It's, it's been around yeah, for a long I, time. It seems to be, it seems to be helping us get to mm. some of the things that are helpful to us. I, I've been calling you Adam Smith all this time and I should have been calling you Burke. Mm. Mm. So mm. I just think there's something there, right? It is very old, but you know, I would like nothing better than to be the Kevorkian. <laughs> oh, oh. Law. it's time to put a pillow over the face <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um wow uh, Woo, that's hot that is hot that's a hot take that's, that's hot what stuff that's what the kids are calling a hot take on twitter right now yeah that's a hot put take. a pillow over its face maybe Yikes. you can hashtag that oh my god <laughs> pillows for patents <laughs> pillow um. over patents <laughs> <laughs> no i i so yeah, moratorium. I I'm I, I was thinking about it this morning. Like, why not have one? Uh, so I get why it. Why not eliminate it though? Um, it, and it could and, be. Is it, it just Burkeanism? It, no, I don't think it's just because all the evidence is against it, as far as I can tell. No, I, that, what's I the positive? That's not, was is that what Lemley was arguing? I don't think uh, uh, Lemley was. It, no, I don't. He, didn't he was go probably that far. arguing about expansion. Well, yes, or, right. He's arguing about the continued support and the reluctance to embrace a hard look. Right. Right. And, and so we should. He doesn't make, discount that there could be evidence. Part of it is Burkeanism. Right. We've had this for a long time. It would be a rash move to repeal it. Right. Which is why you need people like me and John Syracuse to say, let's get rid of all patents. Right. right? Because you need some counterweights at the other end. Of course. But I think Limley would say, I, like, I don't know. I read it quickly, but I think we'd say it would be a rash move to eliminate it entirely. There's some evidence that it may be useful in some areas. Right. But the fact is that. It's the overriding ideal of patent law that it, it that without it people would be reduced to sloth and and we wouldn't oh, have these inventions. That, no, it's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. Uh, um, um, and, and the costs. And are it's not just wrong. It's silly. Um, yeah, but it's silly to the point that it's causing dramatic social harms to the point where you have the people who are actually making yeah, stuff. Is it net, the, the software engineers? Are is saying it net they don't know what so, these. Here's what yeah. we. Part, I think it's a net part negative. of why we can't net it out yeah. is is because we don't have a hand i think we do not have a handle on the demoralization angle and i think that's significant and it's also a, a question that could lend itself to evidence so i don't think i'm saying sure. i want to be faith-based about it i'm saying even if you're a consequentialist you need to s sort of look at that demoralization issue and right. think about it and i don't I, i'm guessing that that isn't right isn't and, explored and you, you see yet. my point my point is that by saying that we should get rid of it i want to push the onus on people who want it to justify it, right? Of course. Because, because the, 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 I don't know if it's anecdotal exactly, but um, uh, I, I guess it is. I mean, but the evidence that I hear from like software engineers and others and, and that I've seen reported and, and maybe right. some of it's not anecdotal. Maybe I'm remembering this from some studies that I've seen, but I don't know. So I can't represent that. But right. is, is that the people who actually make this stuff have no idea what goes in. They can't read, you know, it's like you, we were talking about this paper that we're going to talk about on a future show. Future show, right. That you're working on, which is fantastic fantastic and really interesting uh they can't read the patent they, they they think it's all gobbledygook they don't know what it means right yeah that uh, a lot of them say that i don't think that's true i think in software it's true i think it might it, it's it's probably somewhat true um but i think I it's think, entirely true but i think they're i mean one of the reasons they're having trouble understanding it is because they're reading it through the blood flowing over their eyes i mean they're just they're so angry on ideological grounds <laughs> right uh, that they're they're having trouble looking at the words they on don't the page. want I think it if I mean, they were if they if they were reading a right. patent that was about do you know why because they know how they learn to code 
the way you learn to code is you copy other people's crap right. and, and then change the, it and to do what you want. And if, if it was ever the case that patent documents were a repository of learning where people could go learn about a field. Oh, my um, God. If that was ever true. And right. it may have been true in an era when we didn't have public libraries right, and, right, we didn't, right. and there weren't science journals and all this stuff. If it maybe, was ever true, maybe it was in the 1800s. Right. If ever. Right. right. It, but it certainly isn't true now. Right, this uh, is where I go to learn about Benjamin Franklin's latest advancements in, <laughs> I don't know, like potato peeler, you know, uh, uh, lightning powered potato peelers. Nice. I'd get one of those. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. That would be cool, wouldn't it? Boy, so, imagine, imagine a box you could set up outside during a thunderstorm. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be full of peeled potatoes when you were yeah, done? It just, like, a, like a stack awesome. of potatoes under this like, wooden yeah. thing. Or looks apples. It like, looks like a giant butter churn. Not just apples, not just potatoes. And it's got this huge iron thing that goes up into the sky. And if it if gathers the peeling power, it, there's such energy that boom, everything is peeled oh, in one lightning strike. It's so great! But if lightning doesn't strike it, nothing is peeled. P- pears, apples, <laughs> potatoes. Um, you just need a machine that can do things very quickly. Yeah, with a lot of power, lots of blades. Right? Yeah, getting deployed. So I think you know I'm going to read the I'm going to read the the Lemley thing uh, at some point. I'm sure this summer um, when I have a little bit more breathing room. But I. Um, and I'm generally uh, all in favor of making IP policy more evidence-based. And I think that putting the onus on, I mean, look, I, I, I said once on Facebook that it's like, there are some days when I feel like I'm a patent guy who happens to teach antitrust. And there are other days when I feel like an antitrust guy who happens to it teach is a curious, I've not, Yeah, it is a curious mix, right? You teach both, you teach both a course in, 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 in making, basically in the law that makes illegal the restraint of competition. Right. And a course, which is about an area of law, which intentionally restrains competition. Yes. Fascinating. I, I, I teach the two sides of the coin, right? right. The one side is preventing con- competition yeah. and the other is insisting on Joe it. Joe contains multitudes. I do, uh, <laughs> including contradictions. Yeah. Um, so, so. I, Multitudinous contradictions. In the, la- <laughs> in the last few years, I will say, yeah. I definitely more often feel like the antitrust guy who happens to teach patents. Yeah. Like, so I get how the it's default. It's because I've been beating you down. <laughs> the default, the default of our economy is you get to use information in, even to imitate other people who develop yeah. that information. Yeah, yeah. That's the basic approach of the economy. And it leads to lots of innovations. It's fantastic. Standing on the shoulders of giants right? or even of just regular so people. It's, it's terrific. And, and that, that model put, does put the onus on the person who's looking for refuge from that competitive from right. those competitive forces for sure right and to say hey let's make it evidence-based but it's not like we have no evidence we have a few centuries of using this particular mechanism to encourage some kinds of innovations uh we have uh we might have a concern about demoralization if we were to cancel the thing right. altogether that's a possibility let me make one it's last. a theoretical one yeah yeah uh, worth getting evidence about i yes. think yes I, um, I agree and and i think um at the same time i'm certainly I, I would be all for like as in if i were in congress which would never happen um i would i would vote for nay i would myself propose a a bill mm-hmm. that said um, you know, let's shorten all patent terms to 10 years. Um, let's massively increase the maintenance fees and make them annual, right? So mm-hmm. that you have to pay an increasingly large sum to keep your patent in force. Right. This will force people to let it expire even earlier than the now much shorter term. Right. Um, and let's do the same for copyrights too. And if the Berne Convention tells us we can't do it, so much the worse for Berne. 
light it on fire and shove it into the Atlantic. Okay, I don't I, care. I'm all for proposing right? things that are the right thing rather than so. So a but, lot of but times, that is a good. I yes. mean, those are completely respond. In my opinion, the evidence says those things are responsible because yeah. they are they're they're clawing back a bunch of zany, harebrained extensions on these things that we never should have agreed to. And I would, I would, if if it were up to me, um, being as I am not the IP professor, um, and and therefore having really no standing to do this whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that's true. I would eliminate software patents altogether. I would scale back dramatically patents on um, biomedical uh, research and devices. So we're talking about drugs and maybe biomedical devices and eliminate patents in most other areas. Just eliminate them entirely. Okay. I would scale back uh, copyright to maybe 18 years, 15 years, somewhere in there. There's a paper. The only, yeah. the only study I've ever seen that models that is somewhere between 15 and 18 years yeah. is the optimal period. Maybe making it once renewable, but you have to register. Yep. I'm not sure. Everything has to be right. Re- I would do this. Everything has to be registered. Yep. You want to protect it against copying? You got to register it. I would do that. Yep. And, uh, is, and, and your evidence, like, so the evidence for keeping patent is partly like it's a theoretical construct that we're worried about demoralization. There's some evidence that it plays a positive role in biomed and just the burkinism that we've had it for a long time. And we should be cautious before we comp- before we change course so abruptly. And I don't mean to deride it by that. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of wisdom to kind of Burkean conservatism, right? Of going slowly when we're making dramatic changes to something that can, yeah. but it's got, evidence. It, it's evidence that it responds to a genuine need or issue or concern. Yeah. I just, so, so, so until you have a better handle on exactly what that might be, it's probably best not to just send the thing down the drain. Yeah. Which is another reason for getting rid of software patents, because that evidence is only as old as software, right? Fair point. And, I don't know when people started to accumulate big patent portfolios in software, right. but it wasn't in 1981, I think. I mean, I don't think, I don't know. I mean, right. you could tell me, but, um, so here's what I would do though, right? To handle the demoralization costs, which I think are theoretical, but, but worth investigating. And I was thinking about this with the, uh, with the original iPhone and the, and the iPhone knockoffs that came after that. You the know? Samsung stuff? Yeah, I mean, so they were, they were in a way galling when they first came out, especially <laughs> the Android, because it was, you know, it was just so... It's it's a lot of damn work to make something simple. Right? We talked about this you and I just the other yeah. day with a watch, right? I have yep. some concerns about the watch and yep. and the design of it. Um, and um, it's really hard to make things seem so obvious. And right, and so the the fact that you turn on your phone and like anybody knows how to use it. I mean, there are very few people. Um, I mean, I know somebody in the family with Alzheimer's who had trouble using an iPhone initially, but even they could like operate like little bits of it, right? Which is amazing, right? It's really hard to make things that simple, right? Yeah. And uh, the fact- It takes that, a very deep understanding of right. the way people interact with things. Right. Very and, deep understanding. And the fact that you can just walk in and, and, and kind of take that, I understand why that may be galling to somebody and maybe demoralizing. And you see that in like Apple's response to the copycats and the, uh, the early days of Android and certainly Samsung where not only the software, but also the devices or, yeah. you know, there's certainly kind of, you know, a lot of them are copycats, not all of them. I, I think what you could do is to think of it in trademark terms, that what you want to protect is not the invention itself, right? It's not the advancement itself. That should be free as the air, right? I'm moving my hands dramatically now. You are. Yeah. Um, like, I wish I were periscoping this so that people <laughs> We forgot see to it. periscope. <gasps> we'll oh, have to do it next time. Oh, it's... Ah. We were going to periscope part of it, at and least. we're going to tweet, and we were going to tweet we're out. Tweet that it we're out. About so to follow our Twitter account, Oral Argument, 
Yeah. And you'll be able We'll to- do some groundwork for this next time. We'll do we'll do like the day before, we'll tweet the time and right. this is worth doing. Cuz the day before is where all the construction crew comes in and gets the kind of you know, uh, refurbishes the uh, recording area. Right. Right. That has, there's a lot I want of, people to see these dramatic There's gestures. a lot of planning that goes into this. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, um, uh, I understand why it's galling, right? And, and, and what's, what's galling about it is that your status as, as an innovator is lost, right? And it also sucks to see people just kind of totally free ride on what you've done. I right. get that, right? But, but by the way, you're now making the demoralization argument. Exactly. Because I, I, I believe it. <laughs> I, I, I believe it, right? And, and I think it's important to, but but what I think is important is not to keep other people from copying what you did, right? Even as painful as free writing may be, but it's to preserve in the public consciousness your status as an innovator, right? Or in your industry, your status as an innovator, right? right. So what I would do is use something more like trademark, right? If you create something new, right. which is maybe patentable, right? Yep. Um, at least in the area of software or whatever, you... What what is protectable is an, is the embodiment of what you did, and not the logic and core of what you did. So, so Apple should never have been able to stop people from using a, a multi touch screen or any of the ideas in the original iPhone. The one thing you should not have been able to do is to create something that looks like and works almost exactly like the iPhone in a way that would confuse consumers about which one is the real Apple phone yeah, so or in, otherwise impair Apple stat, Apple's like perceived status as yeah. the true innovator. Like that's all – that's a reward, right? Yeah, it's a sort of – it's a product design trade dress. Um, it, it's, it's a challenge in, in as much as you, you're sort of you, – you're asserting rather than finding that consumers actually make that association. Uh, in the way that you've described it, because because I, I'm just saying that we give a time limited entitlement to it, and but when for that reason, yes. when something's just been introduced, um, it's it probably isn't the case that people yet have that association. Now they may, and they may in fact get it very quickly. But um, you know, this sort of a, a trademark theory does require. I mean, it's sort of predicated on the notion that consumers do make this link. It, that reputational link is there, right? And where that takes some time. Um, or where we believe it will take some time, we tend to ask for the evidence that it exists. Now, there are other things that we think of as, in trademark terms, it, this, the phrase would be inherently distinctive, right? It's, it's the sort of thing that can distinguish your stuff from other people's stuff immediately. Right. Uh, we, and, you, and therefore, you get the strong form of protection immediately. You, right. you don't need to wait and you don't need to prove that someone does it. Right. Um, and you're talking about, well, isn't there a way to take product design and treat it that way? Right. As a thing that you get to protect immediately. Like, for some examples, because, you know, it's, a, it's the soul of narrative, as, as Judge, Hodge, Judge Hodgman says. Um, examples like, are the soul of narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah specificity is, but same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, like swipe to unlock. Right, uh, at least at the bottom of the screen, right? A certain character, the form factor, that, and, and it takes some care because of the things that make the things that seem obvious are only obvious because someone spent a lot of time on making it intuitive, right? Maybe the shape of the app icons, right? So, so I think this would have the salutary effect of not only preserving the status of because all. So, the, what do you want? You, what do you want to have happen? You want us to be able to stop the other producer from making the thing that looks confusingly similar to Apple's product. Uh, confusingly similar to the innovator in any industry, right? So, right, and we're talking about this example. Yeah, this example, yes. Okay. Right, yeah, I mean, what you don't want to do is for people to say, to go to the store and say, um, oh, this is, um, this is the same as an iPhone, it's just cheaper, right? 
uh, or this is which they wouldn't be able to do if it weren't allowed to be in store. Well, that's true, but I, I would allow them to be in the store. I would allow multi-touch and all. I would allow all the technology. So, how do you, if you're going to allow all the technology, how do you disallow them from presenting something? Because it has to be a different embodiment. I, I, I mean, I know I'm using that. That's a term of art. But what I mean is that the. Uh, uh, I would require some distance so that you could say no consumer could be confused about its Visually. status. Yes, yeah, right, right. Or okay. or using, like, you know, the use of the thing, mm, right? Okay. Um, so, you know, um, that that would inspire some litigation for sure, right? Yep. Um, but I think it would be different because you can still, there's no question you can use the idea. So if Samsung comes out it can out be with, pretty short term. Right. And to say that you couldn't do anything else with the iPhone is not to even recognize the future versions of the iPhone, which changed plenty of things, right? right? right. So, so the, the design protection regime that the EU put in place, which is sort of its own category of stuff, um, in some ways functions the way you're describing. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a promising avenue to explore and could, especially if it doesn't last for very long. Uh, and, uh, let me, let me just say in IP, the, theory, that, in IP theory terms, I think in a language that would speak to you, I, I think, and you tell me if IP theorists would see this, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, I really wish first mover advantage were enough in every field mm, so that we didn't have to give artificial monopolies. Right. right? right and what right. I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give a little bit of juice to the first mover advantage yes. by keeping others, by, by making sure everybody knows who the first mover is. Right. right? In a funny way. And this, it's like homes in. I, I mean, was just going right. to say, let me say it, let me say it. Right. The, the, say home, it. the, the, the homes, um, the, the homes is credit theory in yes. INS against AP. Right. 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 It's all about attribution. Attribution exactly. is the most important, is the sort of like the, the crown jewel of IP theory. Right. Right. That that's what people really want is to get the credit. Right. And the, it's a right. And so, so if you give them the credit, you know, <laughs> INS, go ahead, run your story, but you have to say that it was first developed by, by AP. And see, I, you know, I teach this case in property and actually I teach it in leg reg too for, for other reasons. Yeah. But um, and I teach it in the IP survey. I, I first, think it's great first because, case in the book. Um, the, 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 the theory is, and you know, this will always come up in discussion with students, right? But it's true. Some people won't care. Some people will buy INS's paper with all the, you know, credit AP, credit AP, credit AP, because <laughs> it's just the cheapest paper. But right. there'll be some people who read this and say, well, crap, I, why don't I, I just I'm go get the, the wrong AP? paper? Yes, exactly. Right. It's a little bit more, but but I'm going to go to the source rather than this kind of... And you'd be giving them the tool they need to figure out, oh, that's who I really wanted it from. Right. Right. Because right. you would insist that the imitator self-label. Right. So if, if, if Samsung has to stay away visually to a degree... Um, or, or, you know, if it gets any closer, it would have to put labels on all those things, you know, right. Samsung, but designed by Apple, <laughs> you know, that would be a very different. Yeah. I don't know about that, but, but I, yeah, I'm thinking of, um, which of course Apple won't want because right, of it, it, it's not its design. It's right. somebody else's design. And, so, and actually, so attribution is a tricky thing, right? Yeah, Cause does AP really want to be credited on the story that it doesn't supervise? It, it serves a different kind of informational function with respect to news reporting though so the case that you and i are talking about is a news reporting and it's a case right. from the early 20th century where there were telegraphs right and yeah. and so you could report on something on the east coast in the evening paper and uh a competing paper could wire that and get it in time for the morning paper in san francisco or the afternoon paper and it would come out at the same time as exactly. the original paper so basically on the west coast they would have the same news yep. right and so and part of it was about the speed of typesetting as well the yeah. typesetting technology had developed to the point where you don't need as nearly as much time after you get the story right. to put it into print right 
so the delay in time, though, uh, meant that the first mover advantage was re- was erased, right? Eliminated for the yeah, West Coast. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's that's between the telegraphy and the line of sight. So machine. it was another case where basically the court was asking, "What do we do about the technological elimination because of the telegraph of yeah. first mover advantage?" Yep. Right, and yep. uh, in and, this time of transition, right, right the technology's transitioning. Uh, and the majority so new social arrangements. Right. The majority solution was property, time limited property. Right, I think it was probably the as worst between these people. As but just relative property. right, relative properties, yeah. relative property rights. Um, Holmes's solution was just attribution to prevent people from consumers from being confused about who was doing the right. original reporting. And Brandeis's solution was, we don't know enough about this. This yeah. is a whole industry. We We're should send right this to legislature. Brandeis had the best opinion, I think. By the way, yeah, I agree. Um, um, Holmes' the, solution is interesting, though, for this case because yes. um, I think what people like, you know, for for the iPhone scenario, yeah, because yeah. like so, Samsung realizes, or at that time it wasn't Samsung; it was early early on. There were the Motorola and some other competitors using early versions of Android, right? They you you just can't make the same uh, uh, the pattern of icons. People, you need to make sure that people know that this isn't exactly an iPhone, right? And you and other than by branding, right? It needs to work and look a little bit different, right? Even mm-hmm. though it copies a lot of the same technologies, and if you do that, right, then maybe they find a better way to do it. Right? Sure, because right. the requirement is that you stay. It's it's a, like, one of the things you might prompt by insisting that people get some distance away is they might find another really great solution. Right. It's basically what I've called in other areas a creativity mandate, and yeah. that's a label I've given to uh, formula retail bans and land use law, which I'll talk about at some other point. But um, but you you require some creativity to escape the distance from the innovator. Mm-hmm. But of course, if you are a copycat, anybody can copy you under my theory, right? And so if you, you know, unless what you did is an innovation, right? So I don't know if this is going to work. We can talk more in more detail about it if you think that I'm all wet with it. But I think there is a value because of demoralization to just juicing that first mover advantage a little bit to give them some significance in the market so that people don't right. go into the store six months after the iPhone is released and say, oh, yeah, these are smartphones. They're all the same. Like people need to know that right. there's a special and, and one, a, right? And a patent smart ass. I'm not one, but a patent smart ass might, if they were here, say to you, look, that's, that's interesting. Um, it's also the camel's nose under the tent because once, once you put that in place, then the, the sort of hydraulic pressures there yeah, are yeah, yeah. from a public choice perspective, yeah. that thing is going to grow and grow and grow and give me a few centuries and we'll have reproduced all of yeah, that yeah, yeah. Uh, and, which is possible. And right? it doesn't, re- it doesn't eliminate any of the problems of patentable subject matter and everything else. If I have my preferences, we get rid of it all. Um, I do think that that maybe that would that would maybe the camel's nose under the tent would be trademark. Like trademark would now come in, and uh, to and, you're, signify, and you're putting a trademarkish spin on right. Um, and, and that's and but and I would be trademark- waving the functionality doctrine. Like I would be, I would let them like keep people out of stuff which is functional. Oh, right? you see, I right. mean, but you've called off patent law, so you I've called off patent law exactly. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah I don't yeah, know. It's interesting. It's interesting. We'll talk more because this is this is not really fleshed out. I got one more thing though. Oh shoot! Um, uh, listener Josh Lee on Twitter. I use the whole name if it's on Twitter because they tweeted us and it's public. Unless it's a private message to us. By the way, if you send us a private message to uh, Oral Argument Podcast at Gmail dot com, yeah, uh, no funny business. Right. Unless it's periods, in which case you can include all the funny business you want, apparently. Left of oh. the app. And, and you'd like us to use your whole name, we're happy to do it. But we, by default, we don't. We just use your first name. And if you don't want us to use any names at all, we can do that too, if you want to be anonymous. Because this is, you know, I, I think people know this by now, Joe. Yeah. That our show is a place for hot tips. Right. Right. So if you've got some some hot tips and, and you want to leak stuff. Move the market, baby. Yeah, yeah. If you want to move the market, um, 
if you want to do some insider trading, this is no, maybe not that. But this is not the place for that, is it? <laughs> we don't want people committing federal crimes. No, thank you. No, we don't want hot stock tips. I mean, just hot tips. Right. Right. Okay. So, um, uh, but Josh Lee gets to us on, on Twitter and he gives us a pitch for a show. Ooh. Um, now this is not as, uh, uh, this is, uh, uh, well, it's more somber, but on uh, lethal injection, the death penalty and the EDPA. Mm. Uh, and he says he can put us in touch with a bunch of experts, including uh, a friend of his at, at Berkeley, who's written an article on lethal injection, for example. And, of course, he's pointing to some Supreme Court cases. You know, there's a whole bunch in the news about, like, whether, you know, what do we do when a state proposes to put someone to death by unknown means? Right. right? And and when someone says, well, yeah, we're going to use lethal injection, what are you going to inject? Well, we can't tell you. It's kind of a trade secret. Of this. Yeah, and the right. states are responding to the, the fact that they're running out of drugs because the drug firms that have been making these compounds don't want to make them anymore. Uh for a little while, compounding pharmacies, which is our pharmacies that produce, you know, bespoke bottles of things with the right. with known formulae. Um those uh pharmacists are being discouraged now by their professional associations right. from engaging in that behavior. So the states are simply running out of the drugs that are in the established procedures for using lethal injection to uh execute prisoners. Yeah, the desire to to participate in the business of executions is let's say a niche business, right? <laughs> and um and and that niche is getting empty. Uh, yeah, there aren't nobody, firms that want to do it. Yeah. So, you know, so they're having to think about, well, could we come up with other drugs? Uh, how would we get those drugs? Uh, could we, um, you know, a- and uh, yeah, so, so but the Utah, argument, for example, recently decided to uh, firing squads, is a backup, the firing squad, right. which is a method certain. I guess the point about drugs is right because we think it's a drug. So it's just stuff in the vein. And so it's all the same thing. Right. And so we, who cares what's in it? Right. That's. But the the argument on the other side is uh, the argument is um, you have to tell us what's in it because that's the method of execution. I mean, imagine a death sentence that just said we're, you're going to be executed, and the state says we're, we'll tell you the day of how it's going to be. Like you know, forget you know uh, uh, drugs for a second. Think of other like manual forms. It could be throttling. It could be right. electric chair. It could be whatever. It's whatever exciting new technique we've dreamed up on the day of. Well, right. That's obviously not acceptable. Um, right. So but- then the question is, why is an uncertain cocktail of drugs acceptable? Is it just because it's chemicals? It's not. Which is why no, it, it's it's not. Um, and and that is why, uh, of course, the I well, I say of course, I'm not an expert. Uh, in fact, I'm not particularly well informed about it. Uh, but my guess is that states don't want to try brand new groups of drugs. That's why they're trying so desperately to get their hands on the existing drugs that have already been approved judicially. Because they know if they come up with some brand new set of drugs, some courts are going to say, wait a minute, we have to be sure that this isn't causing uh, undue pain in the process of executing the person. Execution right. is not a license to inflict physical suffering as much as some people might want that prisoner who's being executed to endure a tremendous amount of physical suffering in the process that's legally not permissible it's probably illegal even under international law under the convention against torture that could be you just can't torture people just to inflict pain right um uh my point is um you, you when you're choosing a method of executing somebody you you have to be confident that it is not a method that creates pain unnecessarily. Right, right. And if you've never, if no one's ever used 
this cocktail before as so far as you know with these particular drugs well now there's a huge amount of uncertainty about whether that's an acceptable thing right right so which is why you see them retrogressing to things right. like firing squads and of course i'm sure it's going to happen right someone's gonna say let's just start using the electric chair again let's start using gas chambers again uh because those are things that have been approved yeah, and, it's and like, so unlike like, these new like this is such a keystone. This someone is else such is a say, keystone cops thing, though. Someone like, else why is going to say, you, "Wait a minute, they're, how, you, we're euthanizing dogs and cats in in the thousands all right. over the country." Clearly, people know how to use drugs administered to, kill to a mammal that kills yeah. the mammal, yeah, right? Exactly, and in a way that's pain re- relatively painless, right? Um, uh, you know, all those dogs and cats who are being euthanized either from old age and disease or because they're unwanted in a shelter, um, they're not all writhing in pain. Right. right, they're being humanely euthanized. So here's here's the problem. There are a bunch of things here. If one, that's not a contradiction one, in terms, one is uh, there's a moral debate over whether it's ever acceptable. This, by the way, is not what this guy wanted us to do. Right, he wanted us to have a show where we talk to people We're who going actually to. know what they're doing. This is a preview. <laughs> I feel like if we, if, I feel like if we preview it, we'll get some more suggestions. Okay. And, and 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 I think we should talk to the this person would be it'll be a sad episode and maybe a frustrating one, but it sounds like it's worth doing. I oh, think, I think very so too. Much. And jo- and Josh is a, he's, he's a capital defense attorney. So oh, okay, cool. I I don't see why we shouldn't have Josh on the show to tell Fair you the enough. truth, but um, uh, I think it, uh, so. Here's for me what maybe I've been procrastinating on suggesting a death penalty episode. It has come up on other shows. Um. Um, and you and I have talked about it personally. Yeah, I mean, you know, personally, I'm against it. I've always been against it. Those are just my. I, but I think it's just I'm increasingly of the opinion that it, I, I'm not just against it because I have certain views, but I think it's absolutely stupid. It's just to me ridiculous. Uh, so uh, on the grounds where it's just kind of my personal belief, that's just the moral ground. Like, should the state be involved in state-sanctioned killings uh, for? <clears throat> maybe just the worst set of crimes. I don't think they should. Other people disagree with that. I've had students who disagree with that, you know, uh, sure. whatever. You can agree to disagree about these morals and we can have moral debates about it. I don't sure. think we're going to solve that problem. Probably uh, not. Uh, you know, unless we get some of these people on the show, maybe we can. Um, but two, um, okay, you can do it, but you're going to execute a lot of innocent people. It's just going to happen. I mean, you're, you're just, yeah. it's just, is mathematically is going to happen. We've yeah. already done it, uh, including yep. the Willingham execution in Texas. Uh, almost surely innocent. The, the other problem is just how much energy, well, I guess to the, the method of execution stuff, right? How much you're making them suffer. I think that bleeds back into the morality debate because a lot of people who want executions also are not all that bothered by the fact that the person suffers, right? Yeah, and, they, people, and they need to be asking themselves some questions about well, that. Well, usually people have committed heinous crimes. And if you really do think those people committed heinous crimes, then I also feel a lot of anger about that. I mean, if right. you look at those crimes, I mean, you, you know, if it were just me in the moment, I, unrestrained, I might want to make those people suffer, right? But yes. I, I recognize, you know, Personally, I recognize that as a kind of defect to be overcome, right? Um, <clears throat> but we can get into that at another point. Uh, but the, the, I think one of the main problems with the death penalty is the amount of energy it saps from the legal system at, for no benefit. For me, a negative benefit. For others, I think only a slight benefit, mm-hmm. right? Um, it does absorb an enormous amount of resources. Like people like listener Josh, who's probably a fantastic lawyer, right? And does capital defense. And think of the number of people sentenced to 20, 30, 40, 50 years who, in fact, are innocent. Right. right? We've done a show on this, right? Sacrifice yep. a long time ago. Uh, there are a lot of problems to solve in the criminal justice system. There are. There are a lot of problems to solve in evidence law, in policing, and all of these things we've talked about on, on some other shows and some things you and I have just talked about together, right? And the death penalty screws up the conversation on all of these things. Right? It just 
because it's so sui generis, it's so final, right? So many of these cases are only about the death penalty and it absorbs a lot of judicial attention and it kind of like transforms the law in a negative way, right? But and just a lot of money. I mean, a lot of yeah. cash in terms of the resources supporting the people who have to yeah. do the roles that that everyone, maybe not everyone, that, that most people would say, we, we have to insist that those roles be played in the context of state-sanctioned execution. You know, I, I think that, that death, we can't not have those processes in place, so yeah. which means you have to pay for them. The death penalty, I think, is even dumber than software patents. <laughs> I mean, it's just dumb. I, 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 I mean, I get why people, like in an, in an individual case think that that you know you want retribution i I think that's i think you shouldn't i I mean i think there are i think it would be better for society if we didn't think of it in that way we can again a topic for another show but as a systemic matter it's just plain dumb i mean it just wastes resources it wastes judicial energy uh it is um at, at virtually no gain and at a certain at a certain cost just innocent lives to all kinds of problems right. and it's a vanishingly small portion of the prison population right and we have a huge problem in society yeah. and we're spending time talking about this yeah. it's crazy it's it's, it's nuts not, yeah it's deeply troubling and uh and and uh and so much of what's troubling about it i mean a, a big but you proportion can't not. you big, can't not talk about it to be clear no someone's life is at stake so well, absolutely people like we need people like josh to talk about this absolutely yeah. and 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 the and the the share of the problems that are simply practical implementation problems uh like as you and i were just talking about right what you know do you, can you use lethal injection well can you are there drugs available if there aren't the traditional drugs available what drugs can you use yeah are you concerned about using new drugs and the kind of judicial scrutiny that will occasion and therefore you decide to do something else you know blah these are and these... you can't even have an intelligent conversation about that because <laughs> you know from my perspective i'd come into I this think not, i was no, just trying well but... <laughs> i mean but what i'm saying is like if you want to talk about like so we, we were gonna have the death, the death penalty how should we do it right like right like i can't even have that conversation because it's so stupid to have it right and so the only people having that conversation seem to be like people who are actually doing it. But like, how hard is it to kill somebody? Like, you know, you wonder uh, why heroin, heroin overdoses or something, right? I mean, it seems like it would not be so hard to do. And yet they're having a very hard time doing it. And it's because I think everybody's trying to use the one approved technique or variations on the one approved technique, right? Right. And that's because of the, the legal funnel that we're in. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, and I, suppose- I find it so frustrating. As you can tell. And you find it frustrating that I am acting frustrated. No. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I share some of your frustration. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that it, it's, um, it's not silly for a state that's trying to carry out this uh, objective, which is itself kind of nutty. Yeah, so right. the silliness... But, but yeah. to carry it out responsibly, right? In other words, put aside for a moment... Can't be that done. It, it can't seems be done. Your assertion is it can't be done. They are stuck having the conversation about how to do it responsibly because they're actually officials who are bound in, to carry this out. This is part of their official duty. Uh, they clearly accept that rather than quit. So they're, they're trying to do it, right? And I think... It, th- there are responsible conversations to be had along the, within that frame. Uh, What's the literary reference that I can't remember right now of people doing something responsibly, which is farcically, which is farcical, like patently ridiculous. It seems like an Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. Like, I don't know, responsibly doing something which is on its face, 
absurd. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Seems like maybe it's a Hitchhiker's Guide thing. I don't know. Right. I mean, for all... Yeah, maybe there's a reason why a massive... Uh, you know, yeah. Why aren't? Why isn't it just a straightforward thing to go into court and say, "Well, our new, our new lethal injection uh, uh, approach is, um, uh, we take a huge brick of heroin uh, from any of our drug seizures mm-hmm. from our from our police department, right? Uh, and we mix it up with, you know, Two or three other things, like a massive amount of insulin mm-hmm. to send someone into that form of shock, um, and you know this other thing, and some story about that, right? And so, right, you know, no one could possibly survive this procedure because we inject. I think you just need a massive you know, we overdose of heroin. Literally a pint. You just need a massive overdose of heroin. Okay, I. I but. So, so why isn't someone saying that in court? I don't know why not. I don't know why either. But this is the kind of thing. So this is a preview for another show where we can ask these kinds of questions. And I almost like, you know, like the thing is, I love that like people like uh, uh, listener Josh are, are on the front lines of this doing because these people, you know, I, I don't even, it gets me agitated, as you can tell. Right. Yes. Um, but um, it almost bugs me that we would spend time, right? That's the whole point: is that we are spending time on this issue, right? It's and that's I, a reason not I've always to do. Thought, the, like, and that's can, a reason not to. You do can the tell episode. the quality of a civilization by what it, what issues it thinks are debatable, right? What it thinks is worthy of debate—that is the measure of a civilization. And if a civilization is debating over things like whether to eliminate slavery, it's got a long damn way to go, right? <laughs> right. Um, yep. If it's Talking about whether to use patent or some other manner to encourage innovation, right? That's it's in a good place in that issue. Maybe uh, maybe we could be in even better place. I don't know, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, this it just it just feels like this and like. Other, so let me ask you just yeah. to close okay. on a. On All right, we're going to close because well, we're yeah yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. But, um. Uh, but I am interested in the, in terms of so so. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Um, <laughs> What? <laughs> no, nothing. I just, uh, I'm not sure that's possible. That's because yeah. I don't know that I understand what I'm saying at this point. I'm but, just curious know, to know. Long day. For example, yeah. Um, uh, the, the Sarnayev brother who's yeah. uh, been uh, a judge guilty, uh, in Boston. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, and I, who I guess is now they're, 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 embarked, they're, in, the pe- they're in the penalty phase. They're embarked now, on the penalty phase. And, um, and it's a federal jury, not a state jury, and they've death qualified that jury, so they're they understand Which, they have jurors who are not. Uh, can, can I hit the pause button there? Or do you want to do that? You know what I'm gonna. You know what I'm gonna say. Please say what you're gonna say. Well, I was. Uh, another distortion is that if it's a death penalty case, you have to eliminate all jurors who say that they oppose the death penalty, right? Or, or they're unwilling to oppose the death penalty, right? Which isn't troubling, I think, in and of itself, uh, unless which happens to be true. Um, it's correlated with the tendency to vote to convict or acquit. Uh, yeah. And in fact, it is. Of course. Right. So yeah. being being uh, refusing to, being a person who would refuse to impose a death penalty is correlated with being more acquit, acquittal prone. Uh, and so by death qualifying, you're actually undermining the accuracy. Of course. Of but yeah. that's, at least that's my understanding of what the evidence, the empirical this evidence is. something was we can take up on another episode. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And it might not be, the, the evidence might be sure. uh, different now. But um, so, so Back to the Sarnayev brother, uh, I, I think we don't have the kinds of questions about mis- m- mis- uh, mistaken identity 
we do have, I take it, in terms of the arguments that were made in the in the uh, the guilty phase, the guilt phase, the responsibility phase, um, that there are questions about the degree to which he may have been coerced uh, by his older brother, mm-hmm. and therefore not uh, truly voluntarily participating right. in in this uh, orgy of violence and and destruction yeah. and death. Yeah, um, and. Uh, so it's not like there are no hard questions. Right. There are hard questions. There's a tragedy, right? Uh, a but tragedy, there isn't yeah. a hard question about, you know, like, it, was it two other people who set off this bomb? Right. It's not a Willingham case, like in Texas. It's right. Not, right, right. It's That's not a question. That's the arson case. That's the arson yeah. case where there was no um, arson. Right? So so do yeah. you feel that those are, that, that I mean, just use this contrast between uh, Sarnayev and, and uh, Willingham. Do you think there are, there's there's something... It's a qualitatively different conversation when you're talking about someone about whom, in those extremely rare instances, when you can be certain beyond any doubt, not just a reasonable doubt, that this is the person who committed the act for which they've been convicted of a capital crime. I I think it could be a a different conversation depending on what your objections to the death penalty are. Right, that, and that's why I'm asking. And, yes, and of course I'm trying it, to get to the right, bottom of course, of, what of course they are. it takes out it takes out your your worry about uh, execution of the innocent, right? Right. So to um, the degree that that's takes driving it, a concern, right? But it, it it involves a question of like moral innocence or guilt or relative moral guilt, mm-hmm. right? You know, and and there's some uncertainty about that here. But even if you ring that out and you say a jury is dispositive, you still have the other structural concerns. You still have a system that has the death penalty, right? I keep slurring on death penalty. But what do you but, do, but, you know, like, so if you're, if, but you're not, you're, I, I didn't take you to be making an argument merely about efficient use of resources. Like, you, I didn't take your principal objection to no. be, it, 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 it wastes too much money. Because if that were your objection, then you would say, we just need to have a much more efficient death penalty process. Right. I'm saying that, 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 re- well, I'm saying that reason alone is enough, given, I think, the dominant understanding of everybody about how, um, the death penalty needs to be fair if it's used, right? Mm-hmm. So the concern about the misuse of resources should be enough for everybody to conclude this is dumb, right? My G- concern, given that we're going to insist on a certain level of fairness, of exactitude, right. and thoroughness, and especially as if fairness. we do, like we talked about in the sacrifice episode, especially if the costs of getting it wrong were were uniformly distributed across society rather than concentrated into groups, right? Right. I mean, if you if someone you love was as likely to be executed wrongly as anybody else. I think support would dry up, right? Uh, although execution <laughs> is very, very rare in the United it States, is. right? It and, is. Um, but sucks up a disproportionate number of resources. So, so my point was only that that that, that resource suck should be enough, right? Okay. It should be enough given commitments about fairness that are widely shared. Given commitments that are less widely shared about fairness and about morality, I also object to it, right? So even if it didn't suck up all these resources. I would, you know, frankly, I would still be against it, right? I just don't, um, for a number of reasons. Maybe we should do that on another show, though. Okay. Um, I think another thing to think about in that show is, um, do we think it's appropriate to facilitate um, prisoner suicide? Mm. Hmm. of course, the the our uncertainty about a person's actual guilt ought to give us enormous pause in being willing to facilitate it, and, um, and about prison conditions. Right. 
uh, I mean, you, you, it would be a, a, a sort of incredibly Kafka-esque ultimate tragedy if someone who is imprisoned wrongly commits suicide to escape that wrongful imprisonment. Um, I mean, that's just such a moral disaster. I think it's a harder question than general assisted suicide. Uh, I agree. It Which is, is, I, th- uh, I think it is harder. Yeah. But it, for, for those people who, uh, about whose guilt we have no doubt at all, Right. Um, do we insist that they serve out their sentence if it's a life sentence without the possibility of parole? Or would we say, look, here's your sentence. Do you think guilt should play any role in our willingness to facilitate or allow suicide? Why, um, should, why, should, why should our certain relative certainty of guilt play into that? Like if we're less certain that you're guilty, we're going to make you serve out your sentence? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an oddly perverse thing, that right? Sounds it, like, that sounds like Posner's go figure point. In the- Maybe. <laughs> In, in the gay marriage I do cases. think this is yeah. worth thinking about, though. I think yeah, it's worth yeah. it, because it's it's another way that the, that a punishment of death could be arrived at. Well, this is right, I, and it would be self punishment right. rather than state in choosing that. You see, punishment. We're, this is my point. Although we're, it's hopelessly yeah. intertwined with the fact that you're only in that situation because the state put you in that jail. I so. think that's moving closer to the thing that we should be talking about because our discussion of the death penalty takes away from a discussion of what are we trying to do with to imprisonment, do. Right? right? And that and that. You know, for any of us being sentenced to 20 years in prison, I mean, I mean, geez, I mean, that's like. It's unimaginable. It is. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's terrible, a total annihilation of myself. Of the self. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, you would build a new life. I mean, I think, you know, I, it's, I'm not saying that I would necessarily be suicidal. I, I'm just saying that, you know, it is an unimaginable penalty. Yeah. You know, to be. For, for you and me, it is. And for, and for, I think for all of our listeners and, and for anybody, yeah. you know. For, I think not all of our li- this is a good point. I bet we Oral have listeners podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> I bet we've got <laughs> listeners who have family members yeah. who have served long prison sentences. Oh yeah, yeah. Um and who have so therefore who have some real experience with this and what it's like to be that person. They may even think it's or, more they may even think it's more unimaginable than we do because they've been through it or they know someone has been that's, through it. That's true too. And and that's my only point is I want to I think that's where the conversation should be and you know like what is the purpose of imprisonment? How can it be better? Like, how can we do a better job? Ultimately, you know, I, I say this in the Legwork class. Like, the ultimate goal of law is to do more, is to do good things and not to do bad things. <laughs> this is, <sort laughs> right? Bri- this is right. Justice Breyer's point, right? Yeah, this I guess is so. Basically what this is all about. I've always said that law is doing the best we can with what we have. And I can sometimes unpack that, you know, word by word because it's like it's doing, it's the best we can with what we have, and scarce, all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but, it, nice. but, but it also is like doing good things and not bad things. And so – what are we trying to do here? And and that was the point of that sacrifice episode and some other thoughts I had is that we aren't talking about that because we don't care. As a society, we just don't care about the plight of the imprisoned, despite the fact that we know there are a bunch of innocent people in there. Yeah. And that even if they're guilty, all those guilty people are better than the worst thing they've ever done, right? Yep. They That's all true. have a possible future, right? And, and, and we aren't and talking And of course, about that it. makes them exactly like us. Right. Because we're also better than the worst things we've ever done. Exactly. And We're no people, different in that way. Well, and and and, and yet we have we it, we treat it like it's an entirely different universe. All right, we got to cut this thing off. Okay, bye. That's enough. <laughs> Is that going to be it? Yep. Okay.